Well, Father, we look forward to that day when the trumpet's going to blow and we're going to be with you, we're going to be like you, we will see you as you are, we will put on a new body, all things will be made right. Father, thank you for these great truths about which we've just been singing. Thank you for how it encourages us and strengthens us. Thank you that though in the meantime, as we live and are blown and tossed about with trials and temptations, that you strengthen us and that we can say it is well with our souls today. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, for the great work on the cross that he's done for us, for his great redeeming work, taking broken things and fixing them. Thank you for his great example that we're studying in our Bibles. Father, strengthen us during this time. Use your word to build us up, to grow us. Help us to grow in love with you. And may your word be all about us knowing you more and seeing Christ more clearly. It's in his name that we pray, Lord. Amen. Uh, I imagine that many of you in the last couple years have seen the Christian film, Courageous. It's a movie particularly to challenge men and heads of households with being godly dads and loving their wives and raising up their children. You know the movie I'm talking about, Courageous. If you haven't seen it, there's a scene in there that you can easily understand as I tell you about it. Others of you will know immediately what I'm talking about. There is a a particular clip in the movie where there's a young man Uh, has a wife and a couple of children, and times have been very difficult for them. He's picking up odd jobs. In fact, we meet him in the film as he's helping the the main uh, key character of the story build a shed in his backyard. And this young man has a job, and he finally gets a job uh, working an entry point, entry level job in a a factory line where they're uh, making fabric or spools of thread, and it's it's a busy place, and he's working there, and um, and you're part of the story as you're watching it, and you recognize that he and his wife are still just struggling to make ends meet, and they pray for God's provision, and uh, they're trying to trust the Lord, and he goes back to work, and he's, he's along this line, this of in industry where the machines are clacking and everything's going, and, and a manager comes and taps him on the arm and says, hey, you, the boss wants to see you in his office, and and he's a little bit nervous because he, he immediately, in, in this condition, is thinking negatively. He thinks, oh, I can't lose my job. We'll, we won't know what to do. And he goes to the boss's office, and there the senior level manager is standing off to the side quietly. And the, the boss is behind his desk, and he speaks to this young man, and he talks to him about an opportunity to advance and to take a a higher paying position with greater level of responsibility. But while he's explaining the new job to the guy, he communicates to him that he's going to need him to be on his team. You're going to need to be on my team. And he said, I might need you to do some things for me. And he begins to to imply strongly that he's going to want this young man to alter records and, and possibly to tamper with inventories to make things look better than they are or to work in the favor of the company, even if it's not true. And this young man is a believer in the Lord Christ and he's just all of a sudden like a ton of bricks. He realizes, and you can see it on his face, that he knows he cannot do this. And the boss then says, you don't have to tell me now. Go home, think about it. Get back to me tomorrow. And so he does. He leaves. He goes home. He's overwhelmed with the 
um, just the reality of this decision. And he thinks that if he tells the boss he won't take the job, he might lose his job. He cannot afford to lose his job. He and his wife come together just in, in prayer and they're overwhelmed with the emotion of this. And it's very burdensome and they can't sleep that night. And the next morning he gets up and he, he, they pray together and off to work he goes and he knows his answer. He knows, he knows, he knows. He goes into his boss and the boss says, uh, well, have you made your decision? Are you going to be part of my team? Can I advance you in our company? The young man drops his head and he says, uh, no, sir. He said, um, I cannot do what you ask me to do. I am a Christian. The boss stands up and reaches his hand out to the young man and he says, uh, you just got yourself a promotion. It was a test. The whole thing was a test. The boss was just putting the young man in a circumstance to try him, to to see what he would do under the pressure of the moment. And he tells him, I have to have men that I can trust out there on the loading dock. I have to know that my paperwork's being filled out accurately. We have to be above reproach. It's a great story. Have you ever been there? Have you ever found yourself in a test and a trial and you're just not sure what's happening and you're not sure what God's trying to teach you? I invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4, where we have this morning the experience of an individual, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, in the midst of a trial, of a test. We're going to recognize that in His humanity, and as Jesus Christ has taken on flesh, and He's a real man, 100% a man, but He's also 100% God, we're going to realize that in His humanity... That, that the weakness of his flesh, the, the weak moments that we experience can make us vulnerable to spiritual failure in a time of testing. We already know that from James that God does not tempt people with evil. We're going to see though in our passage this morning that God uses testing, even testing from Satan, to grow us. And to challenge us. We're not going to be able to answer all of the questions that come to mind in this passage. But this morning I want us to read our text. And and then we're going to break it down into two parts. I want us to, to just, number one, look at the text. And we're going to make five observations about what we're reading here. And then we're going to look at the three tests. So first the text, then the tests. We're in Matthew chapter 4. Let's just read verses 1 through 11 together. For our passage of study this morning. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Can't you hear it? But he, verse 4, that would be a pronoun for Jesus. But he answered, It is written, Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. (laughs) Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Is that not a most interesting passage of Scripture? I find it loaded with lots of questions and wonderings. And in fact, last week I referenced that this week I would talk about that this testing, whether it could be real, a real temptation if Jesus could not have sinned. We know from Scripture that Jesus did not sin. And actually, we're going to pick that up next week. All right? I also referenced last week in the message, as we were completing chapter 3 on baptism, that there remained a number of unanswered questions, practically speaking, about baptism. Should we baptize babies? Should we sprinkle? Should we immerse? Should I get re-baptized if I've uh, just now got saved? And uh, do I have to get re-baptized if I start coming to this church? And we didn't have time to make another whole message about that, but I put a question and answer sheet on the back counter. And uh, if you're interested in that... Um, It's on the back counter, and you'll see it. It's three pages stapled together, and you might find that helpful to to get your Bible and read through that. And and feel free to email the office and and, uh, direct questions to us or attend any of the Sunday school classes and start asking your teachers questions. But hopefully you'll find that helpful. Well, to our text this morning, what an interesting passage of Scripture as we find our Lord Jesus... Uh, having just been baptized, um, now is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What I want us to recognize is that Jesus is now going to enter a very significant time of difficulty and testing. I want to make five observations from our text about that. Number one is this, that we, we know that this is a time of difficulty and testing But we also recognize, number one, that this time of difficulty and testing is God's will. Think about that. Though it is a time of difficulty and testing, number one, it is God's will for Jesus. Look at our text. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, we already referenced that James says that God will not tempt someone with evil. So, do not picture in your mind that this is, this is God going to dangle, you know, the carrot of sin out in front of Jesus and try to get Jesus to sin. He's not, but he's going to allow the evil one, Satan, to come at Jesus and to test him and to push him. I think that this is more of a, a testing of conviction than it is a temptation of the weakness of the flesh, though we will see that a weak body and a weakened flesh makes one vulnerable to spiritual failure. So God is going to use, like he did in the case of Job in our Old Testament. Remember Job. This is 
This is a, a great story where God is on his throne and somehow Satan has access to the throne of God. And Satan, he points out that Job is a righteous man only because God has poured out wealth and blessing on him. And then God allows Satan to take away those blessings one at a time and swoop down and assault even his being. Remember, Job ends up with sores sitting outside in the dirt, scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery and then letting dogs lick his scrape spots so it feels better, with his wife saying, curse God and die. What was happening there? God was allowing a testing period in Job's life to be used to strengthen him. It's that kind of thing. Next week, I want to go into much greater detail at a practical level on how you and I should expect to deal with temptation and testing in our lives. And I want to deal more next week with the aspect of of a fleshly temptation and saying no to the desires of the flesh. Because you might wonder, is the devil out to tempt me? That's a good question. We will expand upon it, but the idea is that many of us think that Satan is attacking us. And we'll say that. Do you know that the devil is not omnipresent? He is not all-powerful. And my guess is that there are much bigger fish to fry than you and I, and that most of us have probably never expected a direct assault from the devil like Jesus does here. But he has helpers. He has schemes, he has a world system, and most of us, like James references, have a hard enough time just dealing with our flesh in the context of this world, in dealing with temptation. We'll expand upon that next week. Our first point in our text today is that we know that this time of difficulty and testing is God's will, because look what it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Number two, it's not in our text, but it's in our context where this falls. Another profound statement, this comes right after chapter 3, chapter 4 does. And remember, at the end of chapter 3 is when we were in the baptism, and Christ has come down to the Jordan to be baptized by John. He's just experienced this phenomenal moment where the skies open, the Spirit descends like a dove, and the voice speaks of of the Heavenly Father's voice speaks and says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. It is a great moment. And so I want you to realize, number two, that though this is a time of difficulty in testing in chapter 4, it follows immediately a time of great spiritual joy and power. Though it is a difficult time of testing, it follows on the heels of, of a moment of great spiritual power and joy. In other words, you have a a high, you have, a, you have this great moment, and now all of a sudden, you're at the opposite end of the extreme spectrum. From this great moment of the Spirit of God coming and filling him and empowering him, commissioning him for service, coming up out of the water, and the great voice from heaven announcing and pronouncing and affirming, this is my son, to being lost in the wilderness with Satan whispering in your ears. I want you to see that um, this also, though it is a time of difficulty in testing, is from the devil himself. It is from the devil himself. Now, this is a good time for us to, to get in our heads the context of what's going on here a little bit. Okay, so we have a personal attack 
by the devil. In the Greek, this word sounds a lot like the Spanish word, diablos. It means accuser, slanderer. One who is the attacker. He does not want your success. I want us to take just a minute and go to the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke where we have parallel passages. Now remember that Mark's Gospel is the Reader's Digest Condensed Version Gospel. It's the short version of the life of Christ. It's a really good Gospel, as I've referenced before, to keep in mind if you have someone who's kind of interested in knowing more about the Bible and Jesus, but they're probably not going to really study that much, have them read the Gospel of Mark if they will. They maybe kind of might read something. Have them try to read Mark because it's, it's real fast, it's real short, and it captures the life of Christ in just a few short chapters. In fact, you'll notice in, in Mark's Gospel... In chapter 1, verse 12, where Matthew takes 11 verses to to give us an account of this temptation of Christ, Mark gives us only two verses, verses 12 and 13. And so it's very short, but we find out some good insight. Notice what he says. It says, the Spirit, Mark chapter 1, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him, that's Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. There it is. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So he just captures really brief account. It is interesting though, I want, you to, I want to notice three things that we learn from this passage that we don't see in Matthew's passage that sheds a little nuance to our story. Notice what it says. It says, verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out. So one of the things I want you to realize is that when Jesus comes up out of the water at his baptism, not much time goes by. We don't know how much time. Luke is going to say that he went back to where he came from when he was coming down to the Jordan, that he went back to where he was from, and then it was sent out into the desert. So was it six hours? Was it a day? A couple days? We don't know, but it wasn't very much time. And so that's something to realize that here Jesus is in the presence of the great prophet John the Baptist. He has the affirmation of his father. He has this spiritual experience of the dove coming upon him. And immediately he's driven out into the wilderness. So timing-wise, this is happening fairly quickly. I want you to see, too, what it says here that it says in verse 13 that he was being tempted being tempted by Satan. It doesn't say that in Matthew. It just says that Satan comes and tempts him. And when you read the passage that's our text this morning in Matthew, you kind of get the idea that Jesus was out in the wilderness and he's fasting for 40 days and and he's hungry. And then at the very end, when he's really, really hungry, Satan's going to come and hit him. In both, Matthew, in both Mark and Luke, it uses the word, he was being tempted. So it's also helpful for us to understand that there might have been an ongoing season of temptation here. This probably was more than a, an hour or an hour and a half of, of real spiritual angst and temptation. But that it might have been day in and day out for a significant portion of the time that Jesus was in the wilderness. That he was being tempted. And that we have just captured for us a summary of the kinds of temptation when we look at the three tests in a few minutes. One of the questions that comes to mind is, how did Matthew know to write what we just read in our Matthew text? And these guys, they weren't there. Jesus was all alone in the wilderness. 
So evidently, Jesus either told them about this experience, or through the direct revelation of the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit guided these men to write Scripture, as both Paul and Peter tell us, that these men of God were guided under the power of the Holy Spirit and inspired of God to write Scripture, that they were given insight in a supernatural way. That's not beyond reason at all. But Jesus might have, on one of their long walks, when they were walking for a day or two at a time, or when they settled in at a campfire for supper and an overnight stop, you know how it is when you're camping out, right? Get your fire, get your supper done, it's starting to get dark, and you think, man, it's like 11 o'clock at night. You look down at your clock, and it's 8.30. And it's like, well, I'm not really ready for bed yet, so you sit around the fire and talk. Roast marshmallows. Well, I figured the disciples had extended periods of time with our Lord for three years. No doubt our Lord shared many, many things with, our, with the disciples that are not recorded in our New Testament. We're just getting snippets of it. So I think that's pretty interesting. There's one more thing I want you to see in Mark's Gospel, and it's kind of interesting. Notice what he says. He was 40 days being tempted by Satan, and then in verse 13 of Mark 1, and it says, and he was with the wild animals. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And he was with the wild animals. You know, this isn't like with his binoculars and his notepad. Oh, oh, I think it, I think it's there, Mark. It's funny, no more words than Mark uses, and he throws in this line, and there's wild animals out there, you know? And I take it to, to just continue to help us realize what a desolate, wild place this was where Christ was all alone. Well, back to Matthew, we see that This time of difficulty and testing in our Lord's life, number one, it was God's will. Number two, it follows a time of great spiritual joy and power. Number three, it was from the devil himself, Diablos, the accuser. He's there in person, in the wilderness, along with the wild animals. Back to our text, and notice that it says that he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. Number four, I want you to see that this time of difficulty and testing takes place in isolation and loneliness. In isolation and loneliness. Have you ever been in the wilderness? I mean the real wilderness. Like Sam Michaels Park with a bag lunch because there's ticks and squirrels isn't the wilderness. Okay? There's some pretty rugged and remote parts of West Virginia uh, I've had the great privilege, as I've told you over and over and over and over again, to work in Alaska when I was in college. And uh, I was working for an uncle who was a bush pilot, and he had float planes and super cubs and, and other planes, and it was great. And one day, he, uh, he had a kayak, and I strapped it to the strut of his super cub, and he flew me about 100 miles into the wilderness of Alaska. I landed on a gravel bar there and um, took my kayak off, got my gear out of the plane, got my rifle, and I was going to have to wait an hour or more for my buddy who was going to be flown in by another guy with his kayak, and we were going to do about a three-day float trip down a beautiful little stream called the Andreofsky River, filled with Arctic char and grayling and grizzly bears. 
And uh, this little river meanders into the Yukon River. I was living clear up by the Bering Sea on the middle mouth of the Yukon. And I remember at age 18, I was 18 years old, my little pile of gear, my little fiberglass kayak, sitting on a rock, because we had landed on a rock break out there on the middle on the side of this river. And my uncle takes off, and seeing his little cub turn into a a dot on the horizon, and then just kind of like... It's just a funny feeling when you're really in the wilderness. And there really isn't anybody. And there isn't anybody going to come. And you pretty much can't get out of there if they don't come get you. And then you look down the river about 200 yards, there's a huge grizzly bear feeding on salmon. And you double check your rifle and you think, I'm glad the salmon are everywhere right now. And how comforting it was to hear that other cub come in with... And land on the gravel bar, my buddy get out and greet one another and be excited about our gear and go fish for the next couple, three days. There's a lot of difference when you're alone in the wilderness than when you're with somebody and you're equipped. Now, this stretch of wilderness, Bible students have been able to identify it. Um, and some of you have been in the Holy Land. You know a little bit about it as well. And you visited there. It is indeed a place of isolation and loneliness. It's not that big like Alaska, but it's an area of, of dry, um, uninhabitable, essentially, wilderness that's about 15 miles wide and about 35 miles long. We don't know where... Our Lord was exactly in that wilderness, and, and we just know that the Spirit of God led him there, but there he was in the wilderness, and as Mark 1.13 tells us, there he was there with just the wild animals. I don't know, yipping hyenas or what? Puma cougars or something in the desert at night, screaming like, just put a chill up your spine. And there he was. And you have to recognize that in, uh, in his humanity, our Lord experienced with his sensory systems all of the things that we can experience. He did not sin. He will not sin. He doesn't sin here. He doesn't succumb to the test. But in the middle of all of this, he feels and he experiences loneliness. He's fasting right now. Let's talk a little bit about fasting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. It's, it's not very popular in America and in our churches. Interesting to me that our African brothers and sisters in Malawi, where we support Love and Yohani and Elamia Kapesi, that they fast regularly. But you know, when you only have a little bowl of red beans once a day, they just give up on that. We love to eat. Fasting has to do with stop eating. Stopping to eat and not eating like breakfast, break your fast. You've been fasting all night. You haven't been eating, so you get up and you break your fast. That's where the word breakfast comes from in the Greek, see? Breakfast. And so you break your fast and there you are eating. We love to eat. So when you want to fast, you decide not to eat for a spiritual reason. Now, this isn't game playing with God. It's not like, okay, God, if I don't eat for the next three days, and I'm just going to pray and fast for three days, then you'll do what I want you to do. It's not like that. It is when you become so overwhelmed or so burdened about something, or you want to enter into a season of intercessory prayer to the degree that you say, okay, I'm going to stop eating. You usually drink water. I, I would assume that our Lord Jesus 
drank water in Luke's account. We didn't take time to turn there. In Luke's account, he adds the line, because in Matthew right here, he's just going to say that he had been fasting for 40 days and was hungry. In Luke's account, it says specifically, he had no food. But I assume for the human body to stay alive, and Jesus certainly had a real human body, that he drank water. I imagine he became very emaciated. He did this for the purpose of praying and communing with his heavenly father. No doubt this was part of his preparation for his three years of earthly ministry that he's going to enter into. I read a story not too long ago about a little boy who was 12 years old in 1939 in the north woods of Maine in in some rugged high altitude areas of Maine and there are mountains there uh, in our northeast he got lost from his father and his brother. Now, it, wasn't, it was summertime, but he ended up walking for the next nine days through the wilderness, never saw anyone. The little 12-year-old boy was like about 78 pounds. In nine days when they found him, because he only ate a few strawberries, he was afraid to eat the blueberries because his dad told him, never eat anything that's blue. Uh, the berries that are blue, some of them were poison. So he only ate a few strawberries once in a while. I think it's angels. Don't let it bother you, okay? And uh, so what happened was he drank water out of the creek and he ate a few strawberries. He was 78 pounds when he, when he was lost. And nine days later, he comes out at a little lake. He kept walking every day in part, partial delirium by the end. And a fisherman found him and returned him home. And he ended up having full restoration. But he was like 55 pounds when they found him. So I don't know what our Lord Jesus looked like after 40 days of fasting. He was there for the, for the reason of spiritual co- communion with God. It, he was evidently praying most of the time. You imagine for 40 days praying. I, I don't think that he hunted or fished or anything like that. He was probably on his knees, on his face, maybe taking walks, resting, meditating. He was fasting for 40 days. It's an incredible thought. And there he is in the wilderness. So it is a place of isolation and loneliness. Finally, number five, what I want you to see about this time of difficulty and testing is that it was a spiritual attack at a time of physical weakness. It was a spiritual attack at a time of physical weakness. Notice in our text what it says. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter came and said to him. So here he is, a time of difficulty, a time of testing. It was God's will for him. It followed a time of great spiritual victory and joy. It was from the devil himself. It took place in isolation and loneliness. And it it was a spiritual attack that was heightened because of physical weakness and vulnerability physically. That's the story in our text. Now let's look at the three tests. Here are three tests. Notice what he says. And the tempter, we already know that that's Diablo, the evil one, Satan, the devil, that snake. The Bible identifies him clearly in multiple passages. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I want you to see that these tests that are given for us come in three waves. Wave number one is the test of God's provision. A test of God's provision. I want you to look at the phrase that Satan opens up with with him. We don't know, obviously, if... 
if Jesus could see him or if he was some kind of like ethereal spirit that was lurking and murking around. I don't even know if it's helpful to suggest pictures of what it might have been like. But clearly Jesus understood that it was Diablo, it was the accuser, and he speaks to him and he says, Why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Interesting, isn't it? That he knows to come at Jesus at his greatest point of weakness of the moment. What is more meaningful to Christ at this time than eating something? Well, we're going to find out that if it's not eating something physically, it was eating the bread of life, that the word of God was his sustenance more than physical bread. So Satan attacks him at a test of God's provision, at his most obvious point of weakness. And notice what he says. If you are the Son of God, that word if really could be translated since you are the Son of God. Since you're the Son of God, why are you fooling around here You're in the wilderness, 40 days, you're hungry. Why don't you just zap these rocks, turn them into nice Bob Evans rolls with butter coming off of them, and go ahead and eat? You know why? Because it wasn't God's time, and the Holy Spirit was leading Christ, and it was evidently still a time of fasting, according to the instruction and leading of the Holy Spirit, and it wasn't God's way of providing for him. It is interesting, let me put this in your mind as we kind of talk about this, that there is a little bit of a parallel here in somewhat of a juxtaposition with the first Adam, Adam and Eve in the garden in chapter 3, and the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, and this moment of temptation. Both involved food, didn't they? For Eve, she, wanted, she had plenty of food. As far as we know, they had anything they wanted to eat for as much as they wanted to eat, and they could actually eat for leisure and not even sustenance in the Garden of Eden. And what her problem was was being tempted with something she was not supposed to eat when she had plenty. Our Lord Jesus doesn't have plenty, and he's being tempted with something he could potentially eat that Satan is pointing out to him. I also think there's a little bit of a parallel. Now, I think it's accurate to say that this translation, since you are the Son of God, because you're the Son of God, you have the power to do this. Go ahead. And he's, Satan understands who he's dealing with. But I also think at some level, there is this, if you're the Son of God, because he's going to say it twice here in the passage. You remember what Satan said to Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Does God really have your best interest in mind? If he did, why would he tell you not to eat of this one fruit? And so in a parallel way, you almost can hear Satan. If you're really the son of God, why would God hold? But why is God torturing you? Why don't you just make some bread and eat? Well, it's not God's time. It would have been outside the will of God. And and Satan is using this, this point of vulnerability in this, he raises, is, is, does God really love you? Is this really God's plan? What had Jesus just heard right before he was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit? He had heard the voice from heaven tell him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And now Satan is trying to get him to doubt, just like he tried to get Eve to doubt the word and will of God in the garden. Are you really sure that this is what God has for you? And if this is God's plan for you, don't you think it's a pretty miserable plan? 
Notice what Jesus does. He quotes scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so then the devil took him up to the holy city, verse 5, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And now notice the devil is going to quote scripture. Wow. He knows the word of God. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. The first test was a test raising a question about the provision of God. The second wave of testing comes, and it is a test concerning the promises of God. The test of God's promises. Does the word of God really mean it? And this takes us back to the garden as well. Are you sure that the word of God is... If the word of God is true, and Satan has this scheme, Bible scholars think that at this time uh, in, uh, in history of the life of Christ, that the temple was actually being worked on and rebuilt, and there was actually some scaffolding that went up by the pinnacle. Somehow, we don't know how, is this, if you were there at the right time and looked up, would you have seen Jesus and Satan standing up on the pinnacle of the temple, up on the scaffold where they were working up there high? I, I, I don't know. I doubt it. But I don't know. We just don't know. And, and they say that if you were up there at that point, if you look down below the wall, down below at the bottom, it was about a 450 foot drop. So here's what Satan's saying. All right. The word of God says... That if you fall down, angels will catch you and keep you from harm. Uh-huh. So why don't we do this, Jesus? If you're the Son of God and implied, and if the Word of God is true, jump, baby, jump, because the angels will catch you. And now you're playing with God, aren't you? And Jesus knows it. It's not what the psalmist meant, that's out of context. This is for a time when things are out of our control that we haven't brought on ourselves. And God promises that he will sustain his people and that he will minister to us and he will keep us from falling and keeping our foot from hitting a stone. It's a great and precious promise. But it's not something to be tampered with or played with. It's kind of like the picture, I think, of a guy on a high-rise building in a city and all his life's distress, you know, and all is bad and woe is me. So this is it. He jumps out the window. He starts to think on the way down. That was a bad idea. I don't like this. And then he thinks about his old Sunday school teacher, probably Mrs. Toothman. She's taught everybody. And he starts to pray, Lord, save me. His, his mind's going very fast. And he gets saved. And Lord, I confess I did wrong. I don't want to destroy my life. I'll give my life to you. I'll be a missionary to Nigeria. I'll do anything. I'll just do anything. And just... Do you think the Lord just lands him on the sidewalk? No, because God has some laws in play, doesn't he? It would be presumptuous, wouldn't it, to pray halfway down for the Lord to allow? Could the Lord do it if he wanted? But you see what Satan's doing. He's playing mind games with Jesus, and he's raising doubt about the word of God. Why don't you prove to me that you really believe the word of your father and that he'll catch you and keep your foot from falling? Well, let's just drop down there and see if you get splattered or if he lands you with his angels. It's very interesting that he quotes scripture. Jesus says to him again, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In both times, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, a very important passage. And by the way, 
all of Israel would know Deuteronomy 6 very well. And remember that that Matthew is writing to the Jews, and so his audience can really relate to everything that's being said. Even the 40 days in the wilderness, after having come through the water of baptism, and then the 40 days in the wilderness, the, the Israelites, they understood their history. Moses came through the waters of the Dead Sea. Hebrews talks about that being a baptism, and then being in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is identifying with the history of Israel here. The audience absolutely can picture everything that's happening here. Jesus said to him again, you shall not put the Lord to God your test. Again, the devil, verse 8, took him to a very high mountain. We don't know where this is. We don't know what part of the world they went to. I take it they could instantaneously go there. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. It's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? This, number three, is a test concerning the plan of God. The plan of God. We've had a test concerning the provision of God. We've had a test concerning the promises of God. We have a test concerning the plan of God. Because Colossians 1.16 does say that all things were made by him and for him. Jesus, not Satan. We know that he's... He was involved in creation. We know in Philippians, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, right? So this is his kingdom. But you know, for now, Satan has been allowed to be called the prince of the power of the air. Satan rules this world. This is his domain for now. Jesus has not ruled on David's throne yet. He's at the right hand of the Father and he will set himself up over this very world, the Bible teaches us. So what is Satan saying to Jesus? This is your world, and if you want it, I'll give it to you. You just bow down and say, you demand Satan, you demand Satan, bow down. Now John chapter 8 verse 44 says that Satan is a liar, and he's the father of lies. Do you think that Jesus believed for one second that Satan would give him the world if he bowed down to him? Do you believe he would? Absolutely not. He's a liar. And when he speaks his native tongue, he's lying. Jesus then goes on and he quotes scripture again. Well, he then says this time, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. There he quotes scripture, And him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, evidently having enough. Peter tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Right? We'll talk a little bit more about that next week because I can't see him. How do I know I'm dealing with the devil? What's that all about? Jesus looks at the devil and he says, be gone. Be gone. He resists him and he flees. A couple of thoughts of application as we conclude. Lessons from the wilderness, I call this. Lessons from the wilderness. Number one. We need to recognize as we've unfolded this passage, these first 11 verses, and we now kind of picture and can understand what happened, we need to understand as, a, as an application to ourselves that it really is true, number one, that we are often most vulnerable following times of spiritual victory and joy, aren't we? What did Paul say? Let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. God elevates the humble. He resists the proud. You know, when you get puffed up and you think you're something that you're not, you you end up falling, don't you? 
King Saul did when he disobeyed God and he didn't wipe out the Amalekites. Remember what Samuel the prophet said when he tapped him on the chest and he said, you're out of here, you are done, you are put away, your job is over, God is rejecting you as king of Israel. And Samuel says, when you were little in your own eyes, didn't God lift you up over the whole nation of Israel? Listen, when we have spiritual victory and when we think we're doing really well spiritually, we need to watch out because at that time we can fall in a hurry and fast and far. We are often most vulnerable following times of spiritual victory and joy. Number two, I think it's true from this and an application for us that we need to guard ourselves when isolated, alone, fatigued, and hungry. Don't you know that when you are weak physically, you can often be very weak spiritually? In seeking to feel better in a time of spiritual weakness, we will make bad spiritual decisions. When you are hungry and weak and tired and weary and broken, that's not a time to change jobs. That's not a time to go borrow money. It's not a time to decide if you're going to divorce or not divorce. It's a time to, to just get with God. Restore and renew and refresh. Number three, this one, listen to this. I think an application from our passage this morning is that we must recognize and cooperate with God's plan for spiritual growth and our reliance upon Him. That's a long one. Let me say it again and I'll explain it. I think we see in this passage the spiritual lesson that we must learn to recognize and cooperate with God's plan for spiritual growth and reliance upon Him. Here's what I mean by this. When Jesus was in the wilderness struggling and when Satan is attacking Him, was He in the will of God or out of the will of God? He was in the will of God. But what do we do when we're in the wilderness and we're hurting and we're tired and nothing's working our way? What do we do? We start throwing stuff. We start drinking again. We start swearing. We start wondering where is God and does He exist? And we're right in the middle of God's will. We need to embrace that. We need to cooperate with what God is doing. We need to learn to be reliant upon Him in those times, not to resist Him. You follow me? And our Lord Jesus did that, didn't He? He, he embraced the will of God for his life, even in his weakness. Number four, memorize scripture. That's the final lesson. Memorize scripture. Psalm 119, verse 11, what's it say? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When Satan buffeted Jesus, when Satan attacked, what did Jesus do? Did he arm wrestle him? Did he flip a coin and say, if you get it, I'll, I'll do this? Did he logic him and try to out-logic him? No. He turns to him and he quotes scripture. And he resists him with scripture. I'm reminded of a story that I've used multiple times, and many of you have heard me say this, it fits so well, by Pastor Chuck Swindoll, radio pastor and still preaching in Texas. I got in trouble for using his stories last night at the Sweetheart Banquet, but... This is a story that is, it won't get me in trouble. It's not about marriage. Well, it sort of is, but it's not. So, Chuck Swindoll was away preaching. And he tells this in a chapter in his book that's been out for 35 years probably now. Um, Strengthening Your Grip. Talking about temptation. He said, I was away preaching far from home and I was tired. My ride after the service dropped me off at our hotel. 
He's out of Southern California at that time. He was probably in Toronto or something, a faraway city, no one around. Dropped off at his hotel. He gets out, goes in the foyer to go up to his room to rest. He's very tired. The door of the elevator opens, and there's three young women in there fully prepared for the evening work. He goes ahead and he enters, and he's on his way up, and they made it very clear to him that it was fine if he wanted to get off when they got off. He said, at that moment, my mind lit up with scripture. Knowing him, he quoted scripture to them. What a moment, right? What a moment, tired, far away in the wilderness, and all of a sudden, here you are, vulnerable. Do you have Scripture stored up in your brain at all? Does the Holy Spirit have the tools inside of you to bring to your mind the Word of God, to bring an authority and a power of God to hold the evil one at bay? Shame on us if not. Shame on us if not. There's some practical lessons next week, even more practical, on how do we overcome temptation in our day-to-day lives. A little bit more on the humanity and deity of Christ and the significance of his temptation. So right before we leave this passage, one more message. Let's bow in prayer. It's possible that one here this morning is feeling especially oppressed You have a sense that you're under spiritual attack. Maybe you are physically weary and broken and you need renewal. I trust that the model of our Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness, in his weakness, as he quotes scripture, as he relies upon the Holy Spirit for his strength, that that will encourage you. It could be that someone here today needs to come to the cross today. You need to have your sin forgiven. And you need to come to Christ and admit your sinfulness and you need to start over in in humility before God and let Him lift you up. Right now is a great time to just look to God and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. And I recognize that Jesus Christ substituted Himself in my place on the cross, taking my sin, taking my guilt. Would you please forgive me of my sin? Make me your child today. It has to be you and God as you take a step of faith to trust Christ. No one can do it for you. He loves you and he sent his son to die in your place. Put your faith and trust in him today. Let him begin a new work in you. So, Father, strengthen us through this passage. Thank you for our wonderful Lord Jesus. Thank you for just some of the lessons that are embedded here. Help us to be strengthened by them. Help us to look to the cross for our strength, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.